Today in the garage, we have Doran Gold. Doran is a psychotherapist and former practicing lawyer living and working in Toronto. His personal experience working in the legal profession, coupled with his many years of experience working with lawyers in distress, whether at the Ontario Lawyers Assistant Program or the Members Assistant Plan, has given him a unique and valuable perspective on the challenges faced by members of the legal profession. We had a great conversation today. Doran was candid with us about the importance of work-life balance and the creation of boundaries in one's legal practice. Whether you're driving your 77 Trans Am, shredding your Gibson ES-335, or prepping for an adjournment application because you need time off, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Um, I never thought in my life I'd see a pandemic, and I remember 30 years ago leaving the bar admission course and talking about work-life balance. It was important back then as it is now. I don't know if I've always followed it, if I created the proper boundaries, uh, but it is so important. So I'd like to ask you if you could just speak to our audience, explain what work-life balance is, explain what it means to create boundaries. Well, um, they're, they're terms of art, right? So work-life balance is tossed around by various people in various ways. So I'm actually not going to presume to know the exact definition. I will say to you, um, uh, for some people, work-life balance is working, you know, 15 hours a day at law because they love it and they can't get enough of it and it feeds their soul. And for other people, it's six hours a day of law and lots of other things, including their kids, including activities, and that's their balance. I don't judge how people do balance, but their balance is guided by their own values and what they think is important to them, what matters to them, how they want to express themselves in the world and live their lives. Um, but work-life balance is a, a balance between you know, what you do for a living and what you do in the rest of your time in your life, which includes family and children and activities and, and friends. But it's also about the balance one needs in one's life. So you mentioned boundaries. It's a really important part of having a balanced life. A balanced life to me is, here's the, the analogy I often use. If you have a good foundation to your house, then when a gust of wind comes along and makes the house waver, the foundation will hold it up. So balance includes the feeding and watering of your organism, which means making sure you get enough sleep, making sure you don't work so many hours that you burn out, making sure that your workload is such that if you don't have any boundaries in your workplace where you never say no to another file and they just keep piling up and piling up, eventually you burn out. Eventually you don't have anything left. Um, and so you need to regulate your workload. That's boundaries. That's saying no to certain things, certain obligations. Sometimes when it's really uncomfortable and when you're worried what your boss is going to say, if you do, it includes not overusing substances. It includes um, meditating. It includes moving your body. It includes eating well and putting good fuel into your body. It includes lots and lots of social connection, non-judgmental, loving, kind social connection, because we are built to be attachment organisms. We are built to attach to other people, whether it's partners or friends or loved ones. We aren't islands. Some of us, like me, are introverts, so we don't need a lot of people, and sometimes we want some quiet time for ourselves, but we still connect. 
you still need other people. It's a balm for the soul to be connected to other human beings. And if I can sort of bring it back to the legal profession, legal professionals who struggle and don't have balance often isolate themselves. They do the opposite of what they need to do to be well. So instead of surrounding themselves with kind people who are non-judgmental and empathetic, who they can lean on, they pull away because there's shame. I'm not handling this well. I don't want anyone seeing me like this. I don't want anyone to know I'm not okay because the presumption in our profession is that everyone seems to be really pulled together. I look around and everyone's just really impressive and got it all together and no one has any problems. Now that's laid upon the fact that when you ask people, do you know any happy lawyers? They say no. That's beside the point. Um, most of the lawyers who look at other lawyers think they're all just really superstars, which means there must be something wrong with me. And so I'm not going to let on. I'm not going to ask for help because asking for help means exposing yourself. And maybe it means exposing yourself to uh, the, the, the diminishment of your reputation because others will know you're weak when really it's not weakness, it's just humanity. Maybe the law society will find out and they'll consider it um, disqualifying of, of the practice that I have. All kinds of reasons why people hide. And it's the exact wrong thing to do when you're struggling because it digs you a deeper hole. You need non-judgmental, supportive people around you to help you manage life as it moves along. You need also the example of other people who are also open and vulnerable who share with you their struggles so that we all know, in fact, we're all humans in the profession. We all go through stuff and we reassure each other that it's okay to have times when things aren't so good, where you need to lean on someone, where you need to call a professional. That's about creating a community in the legal profession that is supportive and non-judgmental. That's an exercise we've been doing. I've been in lawyer assistance since 2006. You mentioned I was with OLAP previously from 2006 to 2012. And then 2013, I joined the member assistance program and have been there ever since. I've been working in lawyer assistance now since 2006. The issue has always been the same. A profession full of people with higher incidences of depression, anxiety, uh, substance, uh, substance use disorders by a factor of two to three compared to the general population. And that same population that is less inclined than members of the general population to ask for help. It's a real conundrum. You got a whole bunch of people who need more help than the average person and are less inclined to go seek it. It's a big problem and it's something we keep working at and working at. That's why, you know, uh, sessions like this are so important. It demystifies the issue. It gives people permission to be vulnerable without being wrong. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I've been practicing 28 years. When I prepare for a trial or for court or for meeting with a client, I still get nervous. I have this expectation level that I want to meet. And Meryl I know Streep thinks that she's going to forget her lines every time she gets on stage and she's as good as they get, right? Yeah. Stage fright is still, I mean, anxiety can fuel your performance too, but it absolutely, never mind the people with imposter syndrome who to this day, Justice Muldaver on the Supreme Court of Canada in his 70s, if you watch his commencement address to the U of T Law School when he got his honorary doctorate this past November, I believe, of 2019, he talked about how he still feels unqualified. And, and, and that's, that's the whole point is it's 
we feel that way. And that's like just the minor scraping off the first surface. And we're afraid to talk about it. And then when you talk about, well, my practice and I choose, you know, I grew up and there was a saying that, you know, here in Canada or North America, our life was defined by our work, where in other parts of the world, work was just a function so that you can enjoy life. And I I participated in becoming a workaholic. I participated like many of my friends and colleagues in, in just enjoying this profession but at the same time there has to be this work-life balance because there are those that suffer and and that's myself and others we're we're all in the same boat and it can run deep for those that don't speak about it or don't understand it i enjoy all kinds of things that i need to have some boundaries with i enjoy chocolate a lot i don't eat it at every meal because it's not healthy but i enjoy it and i indulge in it but Everything in moderation, including work. Yeah, and so um, it, it and, and, and it's not just the work; it's when the work becomes overwhelming, and people don't have that ability to just trust somebody without judgment, like you say, um, that hey, it's getting too much for me, or I need help, or they start to uh, bury their, uh, their, cons- their, their anxiety in alcohol, drugs. Mm-hmm. And then there's also severe depression. There's- the work can be overwhelming for any number of reasons too. I mean, the work can be overwhelming because of workload. And if you're a young lawyer, you often don't have the leverage to say no to a, an employer. Cause you're trying to prove to them, they should hire you back after articles. You're trying to prove to them they should Put, bring you into the partnership or even just keep you on. And in a pandemic, you're really potentially worried about keeping your job. So there's the, the workload and the, and the balance issue there. There's also the fact that, let's say, criminal lawyers are often exposed to some pretty traumatic things. Child protection lawyers are exposed to some pretty awful things that can cause vicarious trauma that they just kind of think, I got to deal with it, when in fact, it can really impact the functioning of the individual. Vicarious trauma changes how you see the world. Um, how you interact with the world, how you see yourself in the world. So that can be enormous. For some people, the stress of law practice is that they're either in the wrong type of law, the wrong type of environment, working with the wrong kind of people, maybe just not very nice people, working in the wrong, wrong type of venue, let's say Bay Street versus government versus legal aid clinic versus sole practice versus academia, or working in law altogether. Because for some people, like me, because I'm not a practicing lawyer anymore, I, I embodied the Einstein saying that everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will think it's stupid. <laughs> I was a fish climbing a tree pretty well. I was a pretty good lawyer, but I was very unhappy. It didn't suit me. It didn't fit me. But I kept trying because I kept feeling like it's failure to not stick with something and figure out how to make it work. When sometimes a fish should stop trying to climb a tree and go find some water because they fit better somewhere else in the way that I fit better in the work I do now as a therapist. But we as lawyers don't give up. We don't quit. We keep doing it until we figure out how to make it right. Then how do we turn towards ourselves and be honest with ourselves to say, hey, I got to recognize that, oh, I'm overworked or I'm allowing this boundary to be challenged and and I'm not 
putting up that boundary. I'm letting it come and letting my clients overrun me. Or, you know, at the end of the day, have a few beers or a glass of wine, smoke a joint. Um, but now I'm doing a lot more or, or you know, midday during a trial. What do I look for as a lawyer to say, okay, here's what you have to do to be honest with yourself? You know what? Um, there are people who do a very simple daily check-in, a simple one to 10, where 10 is an enormous feeling of well-being and one is falling off the face of the earth. They just do a daily check-in, how am I doing? Just as a matter of self-awareness, how am I doing? Because um, people aren't generally, and lawyers in particular, are not great at checking in with themselves in part because they're not using the metric of what are my values and what is the life I want to live? A, because maybe I am not entitled to decide that. It's not my life. It's the profession's life. It's the life my parents said I should live, whatever. So A, what are my values and am I living by them? And, and also, if I'm entitled to live by my values, how am I doing? How's my sense of well-being? Do I enjoy getting up every morning or do I get Sunday night-itis every Sunday because I, oh my God, I have to get up for work again tomorrow on Monday morning? Um, that's no way to live. But people feel like maybe I don't like it because I'm not strong enough and I have to learn to be stronger. But maybe I'm just a fish trying to climb a tree and I should look for something else. So that, that's the thing is the, that are you following your own values or are you following some objective sense of what a successful lawyer is from the outside? And how does it factor in when uh, a lot of the work that we do as lawyers is try to solve problems and issue of others? And, you know, I go back to the Sopranos lingo. Uh, I have clients tell me, oh, I have so much aggro. So they have so much aggravation that's coming in. And I have to bear it on my shoulder somehow and, and, and at least show that this, this face to the clients for confidence yep. that, you know, it doesn't affect me. And I've done some pretty serious cases and have seen some terrible things, whether it's experiment or dealing with uh, some uh, visions that don't get out of my head when I had to ensure uh, that when they said it was child pornography, it was child pornography. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's tough. And, and I, I do get it when yeah. you talk about uh, 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 having trauma and vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. And so um, I remember as an articling student in 1995, I was working at the firm that was representing the families of the, Fr of the French and Mahaffey families during the Bernardo trial. And the lawyer who was representing the families, when I would walk by his office, I wasn't actively involved in the trial. The trial was happening at the time. I would walk by his office and I would see a little VHS videotape sitting on a wingback chair in his office. And I knew exactly what was on that videotape. It was the torture and murder of three young women. And I knew that for him to do his job properly, he will have had to watch that probably more than once. At the time, I had no sense of what impact that might have. Now I have a real sense of the kind of impact that can have on a human being. And um, the, the needing to put on a good show and not let anybody know that you're, that, that, that you're, you're vulnerable um, means that you also don't necessarily want to let yourself know that it's okay to be vulnerable that you can be kind to yourself, that it's okay to feel the way you feel, that it's actually okay to reach out and ask for help. But that fixing problems thing leads to A, an attitude of, I don't get fixed, I fix. I fix things out there. 
I don't need to be fixed myself, as though we get fixed or not, but we don't think of it in terms of being remediating ourselves. But um, it also then leads to um, not asking for help. And it also then leads to, what is, what is problem solving? Problem solving is a focus on negative. It's a focus on the remediation of a problem. You hand a, a, a lawyer a contract and say, find every hole you can find in this document. The lawyer goes through it with a fine tooth comb, fills every hole and is rewarded for that focus on negative things. It's what uh, Dr. Martin Seligman, who was sort of the, the godfather of positive psychology described in his book, I think it was Authentic Happiness is his book. Uh, lawyers are rewarded for pessimism. They're built to be pessimistic. Well, that doesn't bode well for a happy and healthy life if you spend your life looking around at the things that need to be fixed all the time, including about you. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my circumstances? What's wrong with my practice? What's wrong with my wife? Focusing on all the wrong things, all the negative things, and may I say, skipping all the things that are actually working out for you because one takes for granted that one has two hands. So I'm not gonna celebrate having two hands, I'm entitled to have two hands. Yeah, guess what, you appreciate your hands a lot if you lost one. Why not appreciate it now? Why not notice affirmatively, have a gratitude practice every day where you write down two or three things that you are grateful for and they don't have to be huge things like health and world peace. They can be little things like, um, like the dog came and woke you up and it was fun just noticing things in your life that actually are working out so that you have not something that, that says to you, there's nothing wrong. There's lots of challenges in life, but you need a holistic view of it where there is the challenges and the things that are actually pretty good. I've got both. So it allows you to have not just a pessimistic view, but a balanced view of there's challenges, there's things I have to surmount, there's things I have to overcome. There's also some stuff that's really awesome and great or even neutral. So I have a pretty balanced life in that way. I'm not cursed. I'm not just, you know, overwhelmed by negative. No, there's lots of positive too. We're not in, I'm not entitled to, have, to live in a house where there's no bombs falling on it. There's lots of places in the world where there are bombs falling on people's houses right now. I'm lucky to live in a place where there's no bombs. I'm lucky to live in a place where, where the pandemic is at least somewhat managed. So I worry less about my elderly mom than I would if I was living in Florida. And by the way, she was supposed to go to Florida in March. And at the last minute, she decided maybe not. This thing seems to be a thing. And thank goodness. So I feel very thankful for that too. Affirmatively deciding to be grateful for things is actually clinically verified. They've done studies on it it is a real hedge against depression, hedge against anxiety, because it reminds you that there's challenges and there's also positives. So that's not the go-to. The go-to is I'm solving problems for everybody else. Uh, I'm remediating things. And for me, if I need remediating, I don't need no help. I'll just drink a little. I'll, I'll, I'll drink a little, yeah. Yeah, I'll, or I'll work more. Or I'll work more. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, and, and I, I'm not sure, um, if my recognition of how important this is uh, was as heightened now as um, when I started practicing as a lawyer, I said, yeah, I get it. I, I like it. I'm going to make sure that I follow uh, a certain balance. I want to ensure that I have a good life when my children were born. 
I cut out nights. I, I cut out weekends. I, I work after they fall asleep, but I would take the summer off. Mm -hmm. I had a way to manage my practice where there was no court in the summer. So I felt I was getting through this fine. Uh, but I'm not sure if everybody does because I see my friends worried about, well, maybe the income won't come in or maybe I'll lose that client or that great case. And it's really not that important, but because uh, we are blessed and we are lucky. You know, we live in a, a wealthy country that uh, during a pandemic is able to ensure that, you know, the food chain uh, uh, stays running and operating well and our health system is there. And I can go on and on and on, but you get it. Um, what can we tell young lawyers that are starting out? I think they're more in tune with what they need to do than maybe some of us more senior advocates. You know what, they're, they, they're, they have a bit of a tension, which is they're growing up at a time when law schools have uh, counselors in-house. Most of the law schools in Ontario now have in-house counseling. Uh, so that's changed. The talk of there's, there's, there's yoga groups at law schools. There's, there's uh, lots more accommodation for mental health in the law schools that exists. So they're growing up in a world where you can, where we have a member assistance program that talks openly where we have Bay street firms like McCarthy's and Blake's and, and we're folds having people like us come and talk to them, which never ever happened when I was coming up. So there's more talk about it. And the tension is sure. We're talking about it. But if you work on Bay Street, you're still working some serious hours and you're still at the mercy of working with the right people in order to have a good experience. And you still have to make sure that you're working in an area of law that you actually are interested in and like, because otherwise it'll wear you out. And so they are also aware that while law school is more understanding and more, I mean, we were consulting with Ryerson on some of the ways to make it a more uh, healthy law school. And it's fantastic that a law school would be inquiring of clinicians how to do it better. And I also know that in law school, the law students talk to each other. I used to, I joke with law students when I talk at orientations, and I'm going to do a few of them coming up in August. Uh, my number one piece of advice for, for law students is don't listen to other law students. They have no idea what they're talking about. They will make you crazy. They will Law students will, will strut around the law school telling you what it takes to be a good lawyer. You have no idea what it takes to be a good lawyer. They've never been one. But this echo chamber in which everyone's convincing everyone else, it's no holes barred, 100 miles an hour all the time, sleep is for losers, you know, got to work on Bay Street or you're not a real lawyer. All these messages that permeate law schools, not necessarily intentionally by the law schools, but the law students are, are, are perpetuating these too. And the process of OCIs and everything else, and the amount of tuition that they have to pay and then pay back the loans, the pressure to get a job. I once had a student come in. He was studying for exams. He was having anxiety attacks over the exams. Why was he having an anxiety attack? Because he needed to do well on the exams so he could get the Bay Street job, so he could make enough money to pay off the tuition loans. So in other words, he was going to law school so he could help pay for law school. He was in this circle of hell, right? So for me, young lawyers and law students and articling students always have to be in tune with, no, you don't have to fit yourself into the law. You make the law fit into you. The way you said, don't live to work, work to live. And you get to construct the career the way you want it, not the way 
your friend in law school or your advisor in law school or the person that you work for, your articling principal or whatever, not the way they tell you to be a lawyer. You do it your way. And if you don't feel confident because you've never done it before, you can listen to advice. You should. You should have mentorship, good mentorship, constructive, kind mentorship. But you should also always be listening to your inner voice that says, does this fit with my values? As an articling student, I remember specifically my articling principal, no, no names mentioned, um, was, a, was a rough and tumble insurance lawyer, brilliant guy and a tough guy, and he would write these scathing letters. So I started writing scathing letters. I started writing these like, like sharp tooth letters to, to, to opposing counsel. And, and then one day, one of the young associates, about a three or four year old associate who was like my mentor, he looks at one of my letters and says, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is not the way you build collegiality. This is not the way you build a good reputation. I was doing it because that's what I was being taught. And I assumed that was the way lawyers are. I didn't know better. So mentorship in the end becomes so important, but not any mentorship, really good, healthy, kind mentorship, people who are not trying to build you into the mold of them, but people who take account of who you are and try to help you find the best position in the profession that suits you so you'll have a good long career. And it's so important to stay away from those that are toxic or caustic. I... Uh, had a unique experience during my, my articles. Um, after about five months, it was 1990s, uh, the law firm self-imploded. So I had to find a new position. And I found it out in one of the suburbs outside of Toronto with uh, two lawyers, both of which uh, have their name as precedents on Law Society Tribunal Matters now. And, and I, I recognized, because uh, they said, come on back. I ran away from them. And uh, I had the ability to realize that, you know, I didn't go to school for, for myself to, to drop my own ethics. And the pressure was tremendous because mm -hmm. like times now where there's no jobs, it's so hard. And I, I think it's so important that uh, people understand we have to really recognize, you know, you need mentorship, but find good people. And the good people out there, you phone them, cold call them. They'll answer. Yep. Be amazed. I've never been turned down. When I started my practice, I, I, I did what we call door law. Whatever came in the door, so I could put food on the table, I was doing. And sometimes I, I got involved where I was closing some real estate transactions. And I pick up the phone and I read an article at the time in the Law of Times about some real estate lawyer. I say, listen, I'm doing this. I've gone through my apartment sales. I know this. Can you help me? And they would. It was just amazing. And, and the reason why I, I, I keep talking about mentorship and part of the garage series is about mentorship is because now, since I've been a bencher and I don't want to talk about my own experience on, on the law, uh, on the law society tribunal, I am uh, involved. I sit on hearings. I don't want to talk about it, but in general, there are a lot of people before uh, the tribunal uh, that have issues that, may have uh, had a chance to reach out earlier and didn't realize they could. And um, I think it's so important for people to understand, you know, whatever the triggers are for them to make sure that they don't get themselves in trouble. One of the uh, other uh, podcasts we've done was with Daryl Singer, who speaks straight from the heart mm -hmm. and has seen dark times and got through them, yep. got through them with guidance. And, Gives great credit to your to yourself, 
and I and I and I know that you you know uh, what accomplishments he's done. His story is public. So I was wondering, yep. uh, what would you suggest to somebody who's mid-career and and you know they haven't addressed things and now, you know, there's issues that are coming about where they're they're realizing, oh my God, I got I, I've been patching holes. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an old saying: it's never too late to be the person you could have been, um, and. Uh, it's never too late to address whatever's happening now. And there's no purpose in lamenting what wasn't done or the time that's been passed. You're still learning things as time passes, even if you're not, I spent, you know, 10 years in the legal profession as a lawyer and I'm not a lawyer anymore, but I don't lament having taken 10 years out of my life to do that because I learned a lot. I got a lot of experience. I, I'm, I'm very happy that I did it. And that actually helps me now do this work. Um, but uh, the, the, the thing people need to do more than anything else is identify that you are in fact not yourself, that it's not working, that you're not happy or that you feel anxious all the time or that you are, uh, somebody has told you that they're concerned about you. Your spouse is telling you you're drinking too much. Whatever it is, whatever self-awareness you can muster to say as simple as possible, how am I doing? Is this the life I want? Is this how I imagined it would be? Not, is this how I imagined and what I imagined was unrealistic? Is this how I imagined it would be at its best? Because at this point, I'm mid-career or even early career. Um, I don't have to hold out and try to make it work this way. If this isn't working, maybe there's something else I should be doing, or maybe there's at least some help I can get. I listen to the way, to, to the way you talk about mentorship, and I think one of the things that's available now is not just mentorship that is sought out, uh, you know, anecdotally, that you just know a name of someone and you call them. The Law Society has a coaching and advisory network where you can speak to people about practice issues or about substantive law issues. There's people you can talk to. It's a systematic approach now. You can actually call and ask for help, and there is a roster of people ready to help. Different law associations, everything from local law associations to um, to the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers, uh, South Asian Bar Association, um, FACL, uh, Women's Law Association, uh, Advocate Society, OBA, so many places where you can receive mentorship. And sometimes it's mentorship from people who are, have similar lived experience to you, who come from similar cultures, who have similar um, understandings of, uh, of where you come from or what you're bringing to the table. And that helps so much to have people who understand. And then there's also the member assistance program. So one of the things we have, which we don't call mentorship, I'll tell you more about the program generally, but um, one of the things that we do is a peer support program. So peer support is different from mentorship in the sense that mentorship is hierarchical. You're talking to someone who's going to instruct you, someone who's going to lead you somewhere. Peer support is someone, we have a roster of lawyers and paralegals, um, and I want to make it very clear, we, we serve lawyers and paralegals and law students from the moment they get into law school or paralegal students from the moment they get into school and judges and immediate family members of all those people too are all entitled to use the program at no cost whatsoever. And when they call, they're going to get potentially counseling with professional counselors like myself, like my colleague Alicia Davies, who's also a former lawyer, um, a number of people across the province who are professional counselors who will at no cost provide you therapy. But as I said, a peer support program is lawyers and paralegals 
who have been through their own challenges, they're not counselors, but they have lived lives, they've been through challenges, and they've come through and want to help another member of the profession. Because they realize, like I said, we connect and we attach to people. We need connection. We need support. So they want to, someone who's been through alcohol addiction can speak that language in a way that someone who hasn't can't. And so if you're a, let's say, a, a, a white uh, female Bay Street lawyer who is drinking too much, we can match you with someone who is similar lived experience, similar demographics, maybe similar age, similar geography at a time when you could actually meet face to face, which is not right now. And we will put you together so that they can support you, not lead you, not mentor you, but listen, be an ear, but an ear that understands because they're not only legal professionals, but they're legal professionals who've been through things that are similar. So they model a compassion where the lawyer or the paralegal might be thinking, I'm failing, I'm an embarrassment, I can't talk about this. The person sitting across from them is just offering compassion and kindness. And it's a person in the legal profession, go figure. So they're modeling kindness, which gives you perhaps permission to be kind to yourself. They're also modeling recovery because they're showing you that you can go through something you're going through and have it get better, which lawyers don't always believe that can happen also. So you've got peer support. So there's another ser service that's available. You've got all the counseling that's available. You've got all kinds of other EAP services that we offer, like nutritional counseling and financial advice and, and new parent support. It's a, it's a whole suite of services. I'll give you the, the contact information. It's myassistplan.com, uh, which is the website. And the phone number is 1-855-403-8922. If you go on the website, you can see the, the number as well. Look around. And the one other thing I want to say about the program is, and it's sometimes the most important thing to say to legal professionals, it's confidential. Sometimes people think a, a, an assistance program funded by the Law Society and Law Pro means if I call and tell them I have a cocaine addiction, their next call will be to the Law Society, and there goes my career, right? It doesn't work like that. We don't share personal information of anyone ever period, end of story. The Law Society doesn't want it. In fact, they set up a structure where we don't even talk to them directly. We have an organization called People Corporation that is our intermediary, and all communication flows through them. So there's enough distance from the Law Society that people can be reassured that when they call us, their information stays with us. And that's always very, very important for legal professionals because logically, they want to protect their licensure, they want to protect their reputations, and they're already stigmatizing themselves and the profession may even be stigmatizing them. They don't want to worry that they'll be exposed. And that's one of the reasons why they don't call for help. So that's why we emphasize the confidentiality. Let that not be a reason why you don't call for help. It's, it's absolutely correct. Uh, I know that I'm terrified, even though I'm a bencher at the law society, if I were to get any communication from the law society, you know, the heart starts palpitating mm -hmm. until you get that letter. Um, and, uh, and, uh, so there is this natural fear that the regulator, the big bad regulator, uh, is going to somehow find out that you have dropped the ball or there was a problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that is necessarily the theme of today's law society. And I hope that, that it's not, and I'm trying to play my role to ensure that we're protecting the public by enhancing our membership's ability to do their job. And part of that is, 
to ensure that they, they do have that balance. And so there is that confidentiality built in, and I want all people listening to know that. Mm-hmm. And not that it means anything, but you have my word on that. Yeah. Um, the, the, it's interesting because you talk about the different organizations, whether it's the Law Society or, or the Advocate Society or other uh, um, associations, and, and almost every association has something there. A few years ago, I had a young lawyer uh, articling with me. Her name was Hamna Anwar, and she created on her own a group, a peer support group. And so I'm, I'm so glad you talk about this because, uh, you know, there were different people uh, uh, that uh, joined and it was all female group um, who wanted to be able to get their articling experience uh, one that was, you know, maximized to, to, to the best learning experience that they could. And they had to share that information. They weren't uh, uh, individually on islands. They understand what, well, you know, can I also do this or can I also do that? Or, you know, the stresses that they were feeling as articling students and if they had too much expectations on themselves, they'd sort of be able to moderate them and work it through. So um, I know that uh, a lot of lawyers do put together groups and I, you know, if they could promote it, that's great. But there is a, a, a existing infrastructure and resources out there and they need Absolutely. to be used. They need to be used. They're there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that, uh, that in doing uh, uh, the work that you do, you're able to calm a person like me, even, even just a simple conversation and, and part of my stressful day you know, I look to have calm conversations, even if it's mm-hmm. just somebody at a coffee shop or if it's the worker repairing something outside, I'll say hello and, and turn to a conversation. And, and let's be very clear here. Counseling is not what you do when you're on, uh, at the precipice and you've tried everything else and the end of your rope, I should call for counseling. Don't wait until you're in distress. If you're just feeling a little off, call and talk to a counselor just to hash it out, just to have a conversation about feeling a little off, not sure what it is, maybe not sleeping as well as I usually do. Don't wait until it's a crisis. You're not imposing on us by talking about something that is, you know, just proactively trying to make sure you're staying on top of things. You know, I see little signs that I'm a little stressed out and I had a bout of depression five years ago and I'm afraid it's going to come back and I want to be proactive. Good. Talk to me now when you're still all right and just a little bit hesitant or a little concerned that maybe the upcoming trial is going to stress you out to the point where you're going to start to, you know, lose yourself a little bit. Use the service not just because you feel ill or unwell. Use the service because you're a human being who sometimes needs to talk something out. Stigma is still there, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I wish people and anyone who's listening understand that uh, there's no embarrassment uh, to uh, reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a question on a legal issue that might be complicated and you can't answer, or if it's your personal life and yeah. you need some guidance. Uh, Doran, I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. Um, I've had the pleasure of... Uh, following you on Twitter, uh, listening to you at different programs, you participating in one of our Garage Series programs, and I'm honored that you shared some of your wisdom today. If people wanted to reach out to you or to understand more about the programs you're involved with, what should they do? So um, the Member Assistance Program is, again, at myassistplan.com. 
again, 855-403-8922. It is for all Ontario lawyers, law students, judges, paralegals, paralegal students, and immediate family members. If you're in another part of Canada, there's a lawyer assistance program in every jurisdiction in Canada. If you went to this Canadian Bar Association website, cba.org slash wellness, there's a list of lawyer assistance programs in Canada, and there's good ones in pretty much every jurisdiction. Um, so you're not alone, no matter where you are. Um, and by the way, while you're on the CBA wellness site, you can see a, uh, an online course that I co-authored for them on called Mental Health and Wellness in the Legal Profession. It's free. You don't have to be a Canadian Bar Association member to take it. You can get CPD credit for it. Um, and it offers you lots of information about these issues. It even has six interviews with uh, various people in the profession uh, giving their testimonial, talking about some of the things that they've been through and demystifying some of these issues and destigmatizing them as well. So I very much recommend taking that course. Um, my Twitter feed you mentioned, it's at Deron J. Gold. It's basically a Twitter feed about lawyer and law student and paralegal wellness with the occasional, you know, cute puppy. Um, but it's mostly mostly about lawyer stuff. Um, so you're, you're welcome to follow me there. Um, and the member assistance program is at the core of it. Uh, we are there because the law society thinks it's important that members of the profession are well, which tells you that it's a different law society now. It's an evolving law society. When I was growing up, there were no uh, task forces on mental health run by the law society. And this law society does and the BC law society does. And, you know, they're doing diversionary discipline uh, in Nova Scotia uh, for mental health and addictions issues. Legal regulation is changing. The profession is changing slowly, but the direction is good. So please don't hesitate to reach out. The help is there. You deserve it. Don't hesitate. Thank you, Norm. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sefna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.